Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good evening. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org <coughs> website on all of these occasions. Uh, for those in-house, we would ask that last courtesy check to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. It's always appreciated. And, of course, those watching online as well as those watching in the future on C-SPAN are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing us at speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion this evening on what is conservatism is Dr. Lee Edwards. Dr. Edwards serves heritage as a distinguished fellow in conservative thought in our B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics. He is well known in this community, and most of us consider him the historian of the conservative movement. He was the founder and chairman of the veteran... Uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, has written numerous books, biographies, and histories of organizations related to the conservative movement, serves as an adjunct professor at Catholic University of America, as well as many other important positions. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lee Edwards. Well, thank you, John, and good afternoon and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a beautiful day in Washington and a great day to be alive. Particularly, we have an opportunity with such distinguished panelists to talk about one of our favorite subjects, which is conservatism. So, here we are. What is conservatism? Well, we'll see. <clears throat> Many have tried, and few have succeeded in providing an agreeable answer. Bill Buckley, for example, politely declined Russell Kirk wrote a 478-page book, The Conservative Mind. Frank Meyer came up with a new theory, fusionism, about which I'll have a few things to say a little bit later. And Friedrich Hayek contented himself with explaining why he was not a conservative. And Ayn Rand, what did Ayn Rand do? She flashed the sign of the dollar. So that was her explanation of what it is. So here we are this evening, gnawing at this old bone, trying yet again to answer what is conservatism. So here are a few thoughts. In the foreword to the volume, American Conservative Thought in the 20th Century, the liberal professor Leonard Levy describes William F. Buckley's conservatism as the following, quote, vigorously individualistic in favor of ordered liberty, hostile to promiscuous egalitarianism, and pronouncedly tolerant. While theistic in character, it welcomes non-believers, 
though tradition-oriented and partial to continuity rather than experiment, it has a deep streak of romantic utopianism. Mr. Buckley believes, and Professor Levy believes, that conservative thought is addressed to shaping a visionary or paradigmatic society. And he finds the 20th century to be a hideously science-centered age with a passion for equality that subverts the ideal society. Well, what, is, what does Mr. Buckley himself say about the philosophy behind the magazine he founded and which remains, I think we'd all agree, a most influential conservative journal in America? Well, he praises Frank Meyer, a senior editor of National Review, for his development of fusionism a joining of the ideas of freedom and virtue. The core fundamental of conservatism, Maya wrote, is the freedom of the person, the central and primary end of political society. The state has only three limited functions, national defense, the preservation of domestic order, and the administration of justice between citizens. Reflecting the views of the Founding Fathers, Meyer said that freedom and virtue are compatible. Indeed, their correlation is necessary for the good society. Meyer wrote that the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Federalist Papers demonstrate a simultaneous belief in moral value and the freedom of the individual. And then I think we could agree, or I would argue, this is the consensus of contemporary American conservatism practiced by Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, the political icons of American conservatism, and articulated by Bill Buckley, its intellectual spokesman. Fusionism was not a rhetorical trick, but a recognition that conservatism was a house of many mansions. Fusionism was a logical as well as a prudent resolution of a seemingly impassable political divide. I personally believe that a new fusionism is the only solution for the present discontents of the conservative movement, divided as it is between reformicons, paleocons, crunchycons, neocons, concons, and the 57 other varieties of conservatism. In this present crisis, I believe, conservatisms must come together to form a new fusionism based upon certain ideas, the limited constitutional government, free enterprise, individual freedom and responsibility, a balance between liberty and law, peace through strength, and a commitment to virtue, private and public. These are the core ideas bounded by the Constitution on which American conservatism rests and by which its successful leaders, like Ronald Reagan, have always sought to govern. They are the tried and true ideas that can get America off the road to serfdom and once again on the road to liberty. And now to our distinguished panel of analysts. Rod Dreyer is a senior editor of the American Conservative, author of the best-selling The Benedict Option and Crunchy Cons. Bob Mary, Robert Mary is a veteran Washington journalist 
editor and historian who edits the American Conservative. His books include President McKinley, Architect of the American Century, and Where They Stand, the American President in the Eyes of Voters and Historians. Brad Berzer is a professor of history at Hillsdale College, the author of the award-winning Russell Kirk, American Conservative, and co-founder of the Imaginative Conservative blog. He is also a scholar in residence at the American Conservative, which I'm pleased to say and to share with you all, is celebrating its 15th anniversary this week. And they said it wouldn't last. So, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm Rod Dreer. I'm up from the bayou today for, for this event. And uh, I, I want to, before I get started saying what I think is going on with conservatism, I want to uh, reference Walker Percy, one of my countrymen, who was once asked, the novelist Walker Percy was once asked, Dr. Percy, do you despair? And he said, I like to drink beer and eat crawfish. That's despair. That's, that's the spirit in which I want my, mar my remarks to be, to be heard. I'm, I'm not optimistic at all about conservatism or anything else in our political or culture, but uh, I am hopeful, and I hope we can get into that, into the reasons why a little bit later. Uh, I am on the losing side of the fusionist deal, the fusionist contract, the uh, which brought together traditionalists, cultural traditionalists, social conservatives, religious conservatives on one side, that's my tribe, with the libertarians who are more concerned about economics and, and the matter of, of the, the overweening state on the other. We did find uh, 50 years ago that we had a lot in common, and that's where the modern conservative movement came from. We had more in common than, uh, than, than separated us. Now, though, in 2018, I wonder what, as a, as a cultural conservative and indeed as a believing Christian, I wonder what exactly the conservative movement has conserved. Because from, from my point of view, the heart of conservatism is spiritual and indeed religious. Uh, I believe it was Russell Kirk who said that all political problems are at bottom spiritual problems because they're problems of authority, ultimately, and, and meaning and transcendent meaning. Um, I believe that in part because of our own neglect, but also because of cultural forces outside our control, uh, religious conservatives have been routed. And it's hard for me to see that we have a lot of hope in organized movement conservatism, and certainly not in the Republican Party. Uh, I, I think our main error has been as, as religious and cultural conservatives thinking that as long as we took care of the politics and the law, that the culture would take care of itself. The culture was basically healthy. Well, we've known for a while now that this, that this is just not true. I mean, Paul Weyrich said, I think it was 20 years ago, that, that this, we failed at that. But the lesson still has yet to be learned by a lot of us on, on our side. Um, I think that when you look around, you see the Christian faith is dying in our country. The numbers don't lie. Among the millennials and those younger, the faith is collapsing. And the quality of the faith, as um, Christian Smith of Notre Dame, the sociologist, has shown, is very, very thin. Uh, for me as a conservative, that is a primary concern, because if we don't get that right, the, all the rest of our freedoms and our virtues probably won't hold. So I have written a book called The Benedict Option, which and we can talk about that later, but it's a strategy for shoring up the fragments against our ruin, so to speak, of, of, of building resilient, 
faithful Orthodox Christian communities in a post-Christian society. Um, I'm a pessimist uh, about our, our political future and our immediate cultural future. I, last fall, I was in Paris uh, having, a, having coffee with a well-known French philosopher, and we were both agreeing that the prospects for France and indeed for the West don't look good right now. For him, Islam is the greatest challenge, what they're facing in France, but he also said, and I agreed with him here, that we're losing our elan, we're losing our sense of purpose and meaning, ultimate meaning in the West. Um, and uh, I asked him where he found his hope. He said, well, I don't have any hope. And he was serious. He wasn't being glib at all. And I said, well, I do have hope. And I said, my hope is not optimism. My hope comes from my religious faith. And I, I told him uh, about that. And he said, well, that's good for you Americans. But here in France, we believe that there is nothing beyond this life, that when you're dead, you're dead. I left that, that meeting feeling pretty, pretty despondent for France, a country I love very much. And this man, this philosopher who has moved to the right, he was very much a man of the left early on, but he got mugged by reality, and now he's considered a man of the right. But he doesn't see any hope outside of a recovery of transcendent meaning, which he thinks is closed off to him. I don't believe it's closed off at all, and I, I see conservatism, for me, the, the main cause of conservatism, to uh, re rebuild and to restore and to make resilient Christian culture in this time of, of decline. What does that have to do with organized movement conservatism? Well, I recall after the Obergefell ruling in 2015, uh, I came to Capitol Hill. I was given a speech on Capitol Hill and had uh, a meeting with some Christian staffers from both the House and the Senate side, all conservatives, Republican staffers, and I said, okay, we've lost this one with social conservatives, so what's the Republican Party going to do for religious liberty, which I think is the number one fight right now for social conservatives to protect the churches and the schools and, and individual religious liberty? Nothing. So what do you mean, nothing? Well, it turns out there, were, there was no plans for the Republican Party to do anything about religious liberty because they saw it as a loser. They saw it as uh, just a way to be called bigots, and they had no way to defend themselves. Well, that, that made me realize that we conservatives, we grassroots conservatives, we religious conservatives really are on our own. But that's no reason to give up. That's only a reason to take the fight to the local level, to build our little platoons at the local level in our churches and our, our, the schools we'll, fa we'll found uh, and in local initiatives. I'll close right now by talking about how I, a source of real hope that I found just recently. I, I was in Prague. Um, the book, The Benedict Option, has been translated into a number of European languages, most recently in, in Czech. And I visited the home of uh, Camilla Benda. Camilla and her late husband, Václav, were dissidents, anti-communist dissidents. And the only Christians, they're Catholics, the only Christians in Václav Havel's circle. Uh, Václav Benda went to prison for five years for standing up to the government, the communist government. And uh, his wife, Camilla, had to take care of their six kids on her own. But they did it. They survived. They, they, and today, even though the Czech Republic is the most atheist country in all of Europe, their children all remain faithful Catholics and conservatives, and their children are faithful too. And I asked Camilla how they did it. And uh, they had no political power at all. One of the things they did was they constantly educated their children about what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and in conscious awareness that they were living in a, a society of lies. 
But Camilla said something also beautiful to me. She said, every day I read to my kids for two or three hours, every single day. And she's telling me that's in their apartment that's lined with books. And she said it was important that we feed their imagination and give them something to stand on. And uh, she said Tolkien was a big, the biggest part of their, of their childhood. I said, why Tolkien? She said, because we knew that Mordor was real. I think today here in our country, we, we don't live in communism, communist tyranny, thank God. But I think the greatest thing that we as conservatives can do is to do what Václav and Camilla Benda did in their time of, of persecution and darkness. Go back to the classics, go back to our faith, live lives of great spiritual discipline and lives of joy. Camilla and Václav Benda, their apartment was near the secret police headquarters in Prague. And people knew that they were, were people who had been interrogated by the government and even tortured by the police. They knew the Bendas were people of integrity and people of goodness and people of light. And they would find their way to the Benda apartment to be fed and cared for and restored. That, I think, is not only what Christians should do, but what conservatives can do uh, in, this, um, in this darkness we're now living through. <clears throat> Great. Good evening, everyone. I'm very, very glad to be here. I'm Brad Berzer, and my wife, Deidre, and I just got up early this morning and drove from Hillsdale, Michigan. <laughs> so we got the kids off to school, got in the car, and just found parking behind a laundry. So we're hoping that our car will still be there when we get out. So anyway, we're, uh, we're a little... I won't say we're flustered. We actually had a great time, but anyway, we're here. So thank you all, and thank you so much, Lee, for having us into the Heritage Foundation. What an honor. As we walked in, I couldn't help but think how much this place has meant to the history, well, of conservatism and of the Republic in particular. So it's absolutely wonderful to be here and to be in this building. I've never been in here before, so very glad to be here, and thank you for hosting us, and especially for the American conservative for putting us up. So I yesterday... I had the chance, and actually the, the duty, to finish my American Heritage class at Hillsdale. Semester was over. They have finals next week. You can imagine what the mood on campus is like today, except the weather was glorious. So you've got that kind of strange moment where students are not sure whether they should be studying or out playing water sports on the lawns of their sororities and fraternities. It was a very interesting uh, thing to watch and observe yesterday. So here we're at the end of this semester, and I always end in the American Heritage class by talking about Ronald Reagan and by thinking about what happened in 1989. And I, I'm always reminded, so I was born in the summer of 67, which was the summer of love, but I was born in Kansas. So I, I'm not sure how much of a summer <laughs> of love there actually was. But I, I grew up, and Lee has heard this story many times, I grew up in a very, very solid Goldwater household. So we had, uh, next to the fireplace, we had Goldwater's books, and then we had all of the Britannica great books. And you know, in my mind, that was all just part of the same thing. And in 1981, during this month, May 17th of 1981, I got to see Ronald Reagan speak. It was his first public appearance after the near assassination that he went through and survived. In the spring of 1981, he spoke at the University of Notre Dame on May 17th. And I was only in seventh grade then, but it was one of those things that just radically altered my own life, thinking about what politics were, uh, what did the Soviet Union stand for, where did America stand vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. It really did open up a lot of things for me. And so I guess, like Lee, 
even though we're of a different generation, I see myself very much as kind of walking in between what is libertarianism and what is conservatism. And I think that the only way that the right, if we want to call it that, has ever been successful in American history is when we've seen those two aspects of the right, at least non-ideological leftist thinking, come together. But I think we also have to ask then, what is it that we're trying to conserve? And Rod has already brought this up and brought it up beautifully. But if we are conservatives, what do we want to conserve? And I worry about this uh, a lot, not because of heritage by any means, in fact, quite the opposite. But when I turn on the radio and I'm listening to talk radio and I hear so much of what's being passed as conservatism, as either crassness or commercialism, in some way there's this kind of populism that pervades everything. And I find it, well, I find it disgusting, frankly. It doesn't strike me at all what conservatism was about when we go back to Robert Nisbet or we go back to Russell Kirk or to the great libertarian Friedrich Hayek. So I wanted to bring up three points that I think are important for what we need to conserve. Uh, What matters in our conservatism? Why this uh, conservation or conservatism matters for us as Americans and in Western civilization? So these three things are, number one, I think we've got in some way fundamentally, and the left has stolen our language for this, but if you go back and you look in the 1950s, whether you're reading Hayek or you're reading Kirk or you're reading Gabriel Marcel or any of the Christian humanists of the time, they're always speaking about the fundamental dignity of the human person. And I think there were some people who took it too far. Jacques Maritain took it too far. But I don't think others, such as Hayek, did. I think they had a very good grounded center in what that personalism was. And whether we call it an individualism or a personalism, and I realize there are variations, if we're reading, for example, Romano Guardini, his personalism is not the same thing as Hayek's individualism. But I actually think in hindsight, They have quite a bit in common. And I think there's a lot that we need to understand when we think about human dignity. And it's hard for me not to think of one of the greatest figures of the last century, John Paul II, who defined the human person as an unrepeatable center of dignity and liberty. It's one of the best definitions I've ever heard. That's better than anything Hayek had. And yet it's so Hayekian in an understanding of where the human person is, where the individual is. So I think that's fundamental. And I think when we go back and we look at the Western tradition, whether we go back to Heraclitus, we go to Socrates or Cicero or St. Augustine, they are constantly talking about this understanding of dignity, free will. Where do we choose? At what point are we determined? At what point can we make choices? And I, I think that's fundamental to who we are as conservatives, whether it's 1953 or 2018. The second thing I think is important to conserve is somehow, and this is related to the first point, But we have to be able to conserve, and Rod put this beautifully, talking about little platoons, we have to figure out how to balance what is universally true for all peoples, in all places, at all times. As Cicero said, it doesn't matter if we're in ancient Athens or modern Republican Rome when he was writing it. It doesn't matter if we're here in Washington, D.C., or if we're in Hillsdale, Michigan. And frankly, it doesn't matter if we're the second-to-last human who will ever exist, or the third human to exist. There's this continuity. There's something universally true about the human person that corresponds to justice. It corresponds to knowing our place in the order of existence. Me, for example, not to make this about myself, but just thinking about being born in 1967. Why not 
1867? Why not 2067? Questions I'll never be able to answer, but fundamentally they matter for understanding who and what we are. My wife and I getting into the car today and driving for eight hours. We had a great time. Uh, we have six kids. Rarely do we get to talk. And I, I can guarantee you the moment we get into the car, my wife she really likes to talk, and uh, she really likes me to listen. And there, there, there's a place there. there. There's a fundamental aspect of justice in knowing our position, knowing where we are, knowing how do we respond to one another. After 20 years of marriage and six kids, it, it was funny because even driving around D.C., we got a little, we didn't get snippy, but we were... We're not urban people. What is this? Why is this guy walking across the street right now? I mean, this, these were confusing things. And I would say to Deidre, no, no, this lane. Do you mean right or left? This lane. I, I had no idea how to respond to that, though I do know my right from left. But even after 20 years, right, there, there's that element of justice, something that's universal. But in a new situation, we had to figure out the particulars. And there we were. And we got it worked out. We, again, as I told you, we're parked behind a laundry across the street. I have no idea if the car will be there when we get out at 7.45, but we're kind of praying it will be. But we had to work on that, that and we, we see that in all times and all places. There's a universal order to things, but there's always a particular manifestation. Hillsdale, Michigan, believe it or not, is not Washington, D.C., and we have to recognize that there are fundamental differences in understanding the place within those things. The final thing that I think we need to conserve, and I take this directly from Dr. Kirk, but also what Rod brought up beautifully about the Czech Republic, we have an absolute duty as conservatives. This would have been taken for granted 100 years ago. Conservatives, and I mean this broadly, those who believe in freedom and order, we were the artists. We were the creators 100 years ago, 150 years ago. The idea that the left has been able to capture the idea of creativity, the idea of innovation, this is something only in the 20th century, in the modern and now postmodern world. Russell Kirk understood that we have to, as conservatives, conserve our tradition. And for us standing here in Washington, D.C., or sitting here in Washington, D.C., that means, and I'll defer to Bob on this in a moment because he's just written a beautiful piece on this, but it means the Western tradition. And there's nothing bigoted about the Western tradition. There's nothing knee-jerk about it. It's not about white people. It's not about dead people. Uh, in fact, one of the, well, it is about dead people, but one of the, the greatest persons who ever lived in Western civilization was a North African, was St. Augustine. He may have been the central figure between the ancient and the modern world. He may have been the central figure between Africa and Europe. And he certainly was not Caucasian in any way that we think. Here's this great figure, one of the greatest. He may be dead, though I assume, being a Catholic, not always the best Catholic, I presume he's dancing in heaven at the moment. But regardless, he's gone from this world. But at the same time, one of my great exemplars, certainly not out of Central Europe and certainly not blonde-haired and blue-eyed by any means. I think we have to anchor ourselves in some kind of tradition. And that tradition, going back to Heraclitus, going back to Socrates, understanding the notions of what is humane, what are the humanities. People like Irving Babbitt and Klaus Wren have dealt with this for the last century. These great ideas of being a humanist in the proper sense. Not of being a humanist as a secularist or as an atheist, but understanding the place of humanity as lower than God, but higher than the creatures. Uh, we, we have to understand this. This is an element of free will. It's an element of education. Certainly with liberal education, it's an element of the imagination. So what to conclude with here, and I'll turn it over to Bob. 
But again, to go back, not just to Russell Kirk, but to others who I think understood this beautifully, even Socrates, on the edge of death, uh, the ultimate thing we can do when we think about what it is we need to conserve, we have to conserve what is loving. We have to conserve what is good for the race publica, the common good, the good thing, the common thing. This is our duty as Americans, but I think it's also our duty as citizens of the West. We have to be willing to preserve these things, to stand up and say, this is worth preserving, this is not. We have to be prudent, we have to be just, we have to be temperate, we have to have fortitude, we have to have faith, hope, and love. And those things are critical. Whether we're in a libertarian anarchist society or in a strict republic, whatever we're in, in a constitutional order, if we're not willing to give of ourselves to our neighbor, if we're not willing to sacrifice something, whether it's teaching, the love of a father, whatever it may be, we're nothing. We're nothing at all. And that imagination means nothing, community means means nothing, and dignity means nothing unless we're willing to share those virtues. And ultimately, if we're willing to share and conserve love, that's the highest thing that we can conserve. <clears throat> well, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have all of you here. Thank you very much for coming. I'm delighted to be uh, up here with uh, these uh, three people, uh, two, two colleagues from uh, the American Conservative. And, and uh, Lee, I, I think you and I have known each other in this town for, I'm going to suggest, maybe 35 years or so. Uh, At least. Of, uh, <laughs> of, 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 of mutual respect and regard. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a great pleasure. I'm going to see if I can bring this discussion down to everyday politics. I'm an old political reporter, just a gumshoe reporter masquerading as an uh, author and intellectual. Um, but, uh, and I'd like to begin by taking note of what I consider to be one of the truly remarkable 16-year periods in American political history, from 1964 to 1980, from the Goldwater debacle to the Reagan triumph, um, from a time when conservatism seemed finished and repudiated to a time when it prevailed as the, as the prevailing political force in the land. And I think we need to study this as we ponder where we are today, because I think conservatism today, is, as Rod has said and many, many others, is in crisis um, much as it was, one could say, back in 1965 after that debacle. Today it's, it's ill-defined, it is at war with itself, uh, it's scattered, uh, and it's not clear what is represented by it if you attempt to discern what it is based on what people who call themselves conservatives in the government are actually doing. So the first order of business by way of exploring this question is to ask, what happened to Reaganism? Why did Reaganism not last as a political force in the same way that the legacies of a Jefferson or a Jackson or a Lincoln or the two Roosevelts did? And I think there are two things to take note of in terms of the political aspects here. One is that the Republican Party basically abandoned Reaganism. And I'm going to say here, and I say this very advisedly because I, I, I covered these people uh, when I was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, especially the Bushes, uh, George Herbert Walker and George W. And I have no doubt that Jeb also had he ever become president. They kicked Reaganism to the curb. 
And the second point I would make is that the world has changed utterly. The Cold War, um, the end of the Cold War has created what we call the post-Cold War period. Interesting, isn't it? It has no name for itself. It only has a name for what it is in relation to its previous era. What does that tell you? It tells you, in my view, that we are in what I call crisis of the old order, what, what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. entitled his first book in his Roosevelt series, which very much true was we were in a crisis of the old order, and the world was in a crisis of the old order because the world, the old order of the world uh, had died in 1914, and between 1914 and 1945, nothing had replaced it. And I think that we're in sort of a similar situation. And I don't believe that in political terms, I'm not talking about philosophical terms here, but in political terms, conservatism has not come to uh, grips uh, with that fundamental reality of having to adjust uh, to a changed world. So when I say that the GOP abandoned Reaganism, what am I saying that it actually abandoned? And to understand that, uh, I think it's necessary to t give a, a little bit of attention to what I consider to be a crucial political development uh, in uh, modern political history in America, and that is the conversion of Ronald Reagan to supply-side economics. And I think that's a key to understanding the history of conservatism since, say, 1976, because when Reagan ran for president in 1976, supply-side economics was just a budding thing. It was being written about on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, and Jack Kemp was talking about it, um, but, it but it wasn't a significant um, a point of view politically. Uh, and, but it was brought to, to Reagan's attention during that campaign by Bob Bartley, who was a friend of mine at the time, and others, Jude Winiski, uh, and he didn't bite. He, he, he wasn't interested. Um, but he did uh, by the time that he ran in 1980. So we all know essentially what that is, cut taxes, marginal rates, et cetera, et cetera. But it had two political ramifications for Reagan that I think bear notice. One is it actually worked. It generated significant economic growth. After Reagan got through the recession of his early presidency, which, by the way, was an induced recession. It wasn't one that just happened like so many do. It was the Federal Reserve chairman, Paul Volcker, basically going to Reagan and saying, I'm going to squeeze inflation out of this economy. Uh, are you going to fight me on it? And Reagan said, no, that was a remarkable uh, political gamble on Reagan's part and took a huge amount of courage. But nevertheless, after he got through that recession, he generated uh, an annual average GDP growth rate of 3.89%. Quite remarkable. Um, and the other thing I would note is that it served as an underpinning for a particular brand of what I'm going to call populism. Some people are going to say, how do you call this populism? And I'll try to explain it in a moment. It's not a pitchfork brand of populism with a lot of venom and anger. Uh, it's more sophisticated than that. It's ex it directed at expansive government uh, and and in many ways, although Reagan didn't use this term, what amounts to crony capitalism. And the two foundations were a faith in the ability of ordinary people to conduct their own economic affairs without a lot of intrusion from the government. And secondly, a distrust 
of economic and governmental, and especially a combination of economic and governmental elites that control economic matters through tax code and currency manipulations to their own benefit. So um, this brand of populism had two major political effects. First, it made it possible for Reagan to draw to his coalition those so-called Reagan Democrats, and also a lot of young people who had not been voting or interested in the Republican Party up to that time. And secondly, it fortified him against the allegation from Democrats that he was just a country club Republican who was a tool of the special interests and of the rich and the influential and the privileged. He had an antidote to those attacks. They attacked him uh, with that uh, barrage and that allegation, as they have every Republican since. Uh, but it didn't stick with Reagan, unlike every Republican since because he had that antidote. And I think it's because of that particular brand of populism. And by way of explanation, let me explain uh, how this works, why I call that populism. And I'm going to use an analogy from the early part of the republic, uh, or the early decades, when the federal government found itself with a great deal of land in the West. And the question was, how, what's it gonna, how's it going to dispose of that land? And the Federalists, and later the Whigs, wanted to sell that land at very high prices because that would bring in a lot of money into federal coffers that could be used by the governmental elites uh, to create bridges and canals and roads, all in the interest of, of national greatness. That was Henry Clay's American system. Um, it, it, it was, they, they, had, they had a good purpose. But the Democrats, the populists, the Jacksonians, and the Jeffersonians said, no, 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 sell it, give it away, or sell it at very, very low prices. So people will flock out there, and they'll take that land, and they'll develop the land, and they will build communities and churches, and, and, uh, and they'll build up America from below, as opposed to the uh, elitist, the Henry Clay view, that the uh, elites would build up the country from above. So now we have George Herbert Walker Bush, and I'll tell you, I, I, I covered those people. I covered uh, the early Reagan years in Congress, the uh, budget and tax legislation, so I got to know all those people. Then I covered the, uh, the, the Reagan White House after the 84 campaign, and I got to know all the Bush people. And one thing that struck me was that they didn't really believe in Reagan. They, they didn't understand his success. They didn't understand the core of his success. And they thought that when they got in power, they were, they were going to know how to do it right. Um, and so they basically cast aside both the substance of the populism, that is to say uh, tax cuts, no new taxes becomes tax increases, uh, which uh, led to uh, a significant drag on the economy. Um, but it, it also they also abandoned the Reagan populist rhetoric that made it possible to withstand the assault from the left and to pull uh, those former Democrats to uh, the, um, uh, to the uh, circle. Uh, and so when Bush threw away Reagan's antidote, he threw away his presidency. And the problem for Reaganism was that when he lost to um, Bill Clinton, 
it, it wasn't just viewed as a rejection of Bush. It was also viewed by many as a rejection of Reagan. Uh, and then we have Bill Clinton. And what's interesting about Bill Clinton is that notwithstanding this, this assault on Reaganism from within the Republican Party, Reaganism was still exercising a significant pull on American politics. Because Bill Clinton got elected, he said, my aim is to repeal Reaganism. Two years later, after he tried to govern from the left, and he had his head handed to him in the 94 off-year elections, uh, he said, the era of big government is over. And he very cleverly, brilliantly actually, crafted a means of getting himself just to the right position left of center so he could govern as a Democrat fairly successfully. And the reason that he did that, and the reason he had to do that, was because of the ongoing pull um, of Reaganism. Uh, and then we had George W. Uh, and if George Herbert Walker, sort of out of disregard, uh, did a job on Reaganism, um, uh, George W. just basically uh, attacked it. Uh, constitutionalism, aggrandizement of the executive, spending, and then foreign policy. He turned the party over to uh, the, the neocons to disastrous effects. Um, so the result of that, endless wars, Middle East chaos, unnecessary tensions with Russia, widespread popular unease about which the neocons don't particularly care very much. Um, Unlike Reagan, by the way, who always knew that he had to find a way to craft his policies and his rhetoric and his narrative in a way that resonated with the American people. But now we have people, our elites, running foreign policy who simply don't care about that. Um, so, so in abandoning Reagan-style populism, the Republican Party got instead Trumpian populism. It's not a great trade-off, in my view. So in practical political terms, American conservatism offers not much of a coherent governing philosophy with any chance of capturing the country right now. So we're kind of back to that 1965 post-Goldwater period when conservatism seemed to be totally repudiated. Uh, it, it wasn't dead, though it appeared to be dead. Uh, is it not dead now, though it appears to be moribund? Well, that's the question. Um, and I don't really have an answer. Uh, and I didn't come here to give you an answer, but <laughs> that's my question. Thank you. Good. Good. Well, Bob, I know we have people who want to jump in, but let me just say, in 1964-65, I was there, and uh, conservatives looked at that crushing defeat of Barry Goldwater, which a number of us were a part, and what did we do? In the face of liberals who said that we were through, we were dead, buried, stone cold in the cemetery, that's it, goodbye to Goldwater and to conservatism, we did two things. We decided that we were going to become politically active, and so therefore we founded the American Conservative Union. So that was the political arm of trying to figure out where do we go from here? How do we build on the fact that 27 million people 
did vote for Barry Goldwater. Frank Meyer said, you know, you can build a pretty good political movement with the base of 27 million people. <coughs> On the intellectual side, we started the Philadelphia Society. And who was there at the beginnings of it in Chicago, uh, talking about what is conservatism. That was the topic, what is conservatism, were Milton Friedman and Russell Kirk. And coming out of that was the beginnings of, well, where are we? What are the ideas? What can be some, some kind of philosophical foundation for a political movement? Because up until that time, we had been more of an intellectual than a political movement. But following with, with Goldwater and our experiment with that, we were very fortunate because along came, just as you know, very shortly thereafter, in 1966, Ronald Reagan. And so we were able to transfer all that energy and excitement and dynamism that we gendered with Barry Goldwater to Ronald Reagan. And that was, that was certainly a key thing. I think also one has to say that uh, Reagan was many things, <clears throat> but one of the reasons why he was so successful that he was a man of intense ambition. We forget that. He really wanted to be president. There's been some recent research on this which has shown that he was really trying very hard to get the nomination in 68. I didn't realize that in my own research. That's now come to light. He was closer than a lot of people knew at that time. <clears throat> right. Right, Tom Reed and others as well. Man of intense ambition and also willing to be pragmatic about things and reaching out to people. So if we're talking about leadership for the future, we need charismatic leadership, but we also need pragmatic prudential leadership as well. Just a few thoughts on, on your idea. I agree with you. Those 16 years were key between 64 and 1980. Please. Can I jump in, Lee? I, yes, please. I, um, I became a conservative because of Ronald Reagan. I entered college in 1985 as a liberal, and I left as a conservative, in large part because of Reagan, but I think even more because of the, the dynamism, the intellectual dynamism, all the best arguments and all the best writing was on the right. Um, and, and I became convinced. I wonder, though, if today, if a Ronald Reagan is even possible, or if, if we expect too much, because not only has the media landscape fragmented, the whole idea of authority has fragmented. Back then in the 80s, you read National Review, you read the uh, American Spectator, and there were other magazines that you read and people you looked to as authority figures to tell you what conservatism meant and what conservatives were to do. Today, do we even have that? Is that even possible? Um, and I think part of the, the answer to these questions is about where we, where we go, what we might do to resurrect conservatism, is asking ourselves, what do we have to give up from the Reagan era or from what we, we idealized from the Reagan era? What do we have to give up in order to conserve what really matters? And I don't have the answer to that either, but I think we have to be careful not to be too backward-looking um, and, and, and forget that Reagan emerged out of a specific time and a specific place to confront specific problems. And he won. He triumphed. But now we have different problems. And I, I, I don't think anybody here is suggesting this, but I think do we really, I think it's, it's fair to ask some conservatives, is the problem we face now really we need more tax cuts and we need more foreign wars? 
You know, I, I, I don't see what, con what conservatism has to say much beyond that. I believe that the conservative tradition does, but popular conservatism, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing a lot more than that or just saying no to whatever the liberals want to, want to put out there. And I'm happy for that, but we need to have more, more than that. Finally, I want to say that I, something um, Bob said reminded me of a, a speech I heard by Senator Ben Sass last fall. He, Senator Sass spoke to a group of evangelical philanthropists um, I was present for the, for the meeting. It was a really good speech. He spoke for 45 minutes and didn't mention politics once, which I thought was unusual for a senator. But he, what he said to the philanthropists was, we are going into a time, we have entered and will continue to go into a time of intense turmoil, the likes of which we haven't seen for a long time in this country. He said, what you need to do speaking to the philanthropists, is devote your time and your treasure to helping build resilient local communities. He said, social science tells us that there are four things people need to be stable and happy and to thrive. They need to have a religion or a philosophy that explains suffering and death to them and reconciles them to that. They need to have a family. They need to have a core group of good friends they can count on. And they need to have meaningful work. Senator Sass said, we're entering a time when all four of those things will be challenged intensely. And if we are going to make it as a society, as a culture through that, we have got to give, help people to stay resilient in the face of all those pressures. Now notice, he didn't mention politics once. Politics are important. But I would say that, fo that focusing on the local culture and, build and facing these problems that Senator Sass identified, that is the most important thing that conservatives can do. Mm. Brad. Well, I would just, I, I love what's been said, and I, I think there's so many things that could be say, said about Reagan in particular. I'll just try and make two points. If we look back to 1953, I, I, when Kirk published The Conservative Mind in May of that year, there were just as many divisions, if not more, than there are now, and I think there probably were during much of the time, especially after Goldwater and, and prior to Reagan. And just listing quickly, we had the kind of classical liberalism of Hayek, we had the agrarianism of the Southerners, we had the anarchism of, of uh, Albert J. Nock, we had the fabulism of Ray Bradbury, the humanism of Babbitt and Moore and Eliot. And I think one of the things that Kirk was able to do was take that kind of decentralized aspect of things and give it a kind of coherent voice, at least for a while. And Lee could take this narrative far better than I could, but that does, that Kirkian and then that Hayekian kind of agreement does allow for Goldwater to rise and then ultimately for Reagan. My, my second point would be, and I, I will freely admit, so much like Rod, I Reagan was shot when I was in seventh grade. I remember our vice principal coming on and telling us he was dead, which, of course, obviously was not, but that was the, the worry after the assassination attempt in 1981. And I remember sitting in Zom Hall at Notre Dame in 1989 and watching the wall fall. I mean, Reagan will always be that president for me, and it's hard for me to think objectively about him. But I will say this, and I, I say this probably more as just Brad than anything else, but it strikes me that Reagan gave us 
whatever else, he gave us 20 years. He gave us 20 years abroad, and he gave us 20 years at home. Uh, the economic success, the seven fat years, we lived off of that until 2008. Uh, abroad, uh, one of the reasons he created the 600-ship Navy and the military that he did was not so that we would become an empire, but so that we could end an empire and then retrench. And I, I think Reagan made a calculation. His calculation was, mm. we will do everything possible to defeat the Soviet Union, and hopefully people in the future after that victory will do the right thing. And as Bob said so eloquently, they kicked Reagan to the curb. And I think that Reagan vision, that kind of salvation we had, worldly salvation obviously, but that salvation we had in the West, it lasted 20 years and we blew it. Uh, we extended, we've got troops now in 150 out of the 200 countries. We've got military bases everywhere. We don't have any coherent foreign policy. We just go and react. It, those are all things I think Reagan would have just abhorred uh, in every way. And I don't think he would have seen what, his le- what has become of his legacy. Uh, it's certainly not his fault, but I think we've, we have kicked him to the curb overall. Mm-hmm. Well, I, would, I would draw uh, one significant distinction, in my view, between 1953 and today. It's not to take anything away from your point, Brad. Sure. It's, it's totally apt. Um, but in 1953, we knew what the issues were because the world had been recreated through the, that cataclysm of World War II. And Franklin Roosevelt created a new world with America at its, at its center. Uh, and that was clear to everybody. Uh, we had the Cold War, and that was uh, a, a problem and a uh, menace, uh, and it, it certainly had psychological implications. Um, but we knew what the era was. We knew how it was defined. We knew what the issues were. Today, we don't. Um, and I think that that makes a much, much larger challenge for conservatives and for liberals and for Americans and for anybody in the arena. Um, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, in my view, we our politics have become so venomous uh, and so poisoned. Uh, and that's going to continue until some kind of a new era emerges to replace the old one uh, uh, with, uh, and to replace the transition between the old and the new that, we, that we're living through today without really realizing it. We're going to go to the uh, audience for a Q&A, but let me just make one point, if I may. Talking, Brad, about wars and getting involved in them, the Reagan era and the Reagan doctrine in the 1980s. If you go back and study that decade, you'll see how very, very careful Reagan was in his use of force over and over again. That if there was a problem, I was in Grenada, yes, he would use force, but it was more than adequate to solve that as quickly as possible with a minimal loss of life. And particularly, he said, I'm not going to send men to fight in Nicaragua or in Afghanistan. What he did was to support anti-communist forces in both of those countries. So he was someone who truly believed in peace through strength, a phrase, by the way, which is first used by Dwight David Eisenhower and which Reagan borrowed. And I remember meeting with a KGB colonel here who was trying to pump me for information about the inside story on Ronald Reagan because I'd written a book about him. And I kept telling Gennady, I said, Gennady, 
He doesn't want war. What he wants is an opportunity, this is early 80s, to sit down and talk with you guys. But of course, you keep dying on him. So <laughs> if, you could get, if you can get a leader who doesn't die, then Reagan will sit down and talk with him from strength. And he was saying, no, he's not talking about dropping a bomb on Moscow. He's talking about sitting down at the bargaining table. And of course, that's precisely what happened. And by the way, one more little thing. Um, so the last time I met with this, with my, with my KGB buddy, 1985, Gorbachev had just been uh, uh, picked as general secretary of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union. And Gennady looked at me, and he sort of leaned forward, he looked around, and he said about Gorbachev, he's different. He's different. So even a KGB guy could see that there was something special about, about Gorbachev. And uh, that's the way it turned out to be. We so, need to finish up here tonight so we can go watch the Americans. It's, the, <laughs> it's on tonight, you know. <laughs> okay, let's see what our deadline is. So questions from, from the audience. Uh, do we have a... Uh, yeah, here we are. Please, if you would be so kind as to identify yourself and try to keep your orations down as much as possible. <laughs> I'm a professor, that's difficult. Uh, so <laughs> my name is Nigel Ashford from the Institute of Humane Studies. Uh, American conservatism has been described as being based on three pillars, free market economics, cultural traditionalism, and a strong foreign policy. Is that a good description of conservatism today, and should it be? <clears throat> uh, I'll, I'll be happy to tackle that. Um, um, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I think where, where my problem may arise is on a strong foreign policy. I don't know what that means, uh, but if it means the American foreign policy since uh, George W. Bush uh, post 9-11, uh, I'm against it, and so I'm against a strong foreign policy. But I'm not against America being in the world. I think we have to be in the world. We have too much power and we have too many interests and we have too much of a role to play towards uh, stability. Uh, but uh, going overseas in search of monsters to destroy uh, and to remake societies in our image uh, and all of that is a disaster, it has been a disaster, and it's going to continue to be a disaster, and I suspect we're going to continue to do it, maybe on a big scale next time. Uh, so I'm very worried about it. About the uh, culture and religious traditionalism, um, I think that was a fair description at one point. I don't know that it still is at all. Hmm. And I'm not only talking about the collapse of religious faith, especially among the young, but also the, the uh, falling apart of the family. I think one of the most important stories of our time is the collapse of the white working class. The African-American working class has been suffering through, through this for a long time, and now it's moved to the white working class. We see middle-class people, too, of all races, um, young people suffering from great anxieties, a, a loss of a sense of purpose, um, and on and on and on. Uh, you can read lots about this. This is not coming from, this is a manifestation of a weak culture, of a weak, weak traditional culture. I gave a talk a few years ago at a conservative Christian college and uh, I was talking to the professors there, and I said, well, this must be a really good place to teach. You must see great things among the students. 
And they said, actually, uh, we worry a lot about these kids because they come here with no cultural background at all, no very thin sort of, uh, of religion, uh, sense of religion or doctor or anything like that, and they come from really broken families. One of the professors said, I really doubt that most of our students will ever be able to form a, a stable family. I was shocked. This is a conservative evangelical college. I looked around the table. All the other professors nodded. I said, but why ever not? And they said, because they've never seen it. I mean, this, this is the, the, the decay is pretty deep here. And I'm not saying this in a, to give a dreamy ad about, um, you know, about we have, to, we have to get back to the Bible and all that. A lot of that 1980s style religious fundamental, political fundamentalism is out of fashion and it's become actually kind of repulsive in what some of the religious leaders have done under Trump. We know that, but I'm talking about a more fundamental traditionalism, more not only religious but cultural. Finally, uh, our friend Patrick Deneen, who will be speaking tomorrow night at the American Conservative Gala, he said something that really shocked me. He wrote a column that got a lot of attention a few years ago talking about his students at Notre Dame. He said, these are the best and the brightest. They come here, they work hard, they are ambitious, they have ticked all the boxes off, but they're blanks. They don't know anything about where they came from or where they're going. They know nothing about the history and culture of, of their own country and their own civilization. And uh, it scares him, frankly. And it's not the fault of these kids. It's the fault of we adults who have failed them. <clears throat> Questions? Please in the back or we're to the front here. Okay, we'll come down there. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Avi. Um, I want you to speak to the role that immigration plays in our current conservative crisis. In our current system, we obviously have a lot of immigration without any efforts of assimilation. And is it even sustainable to ask the question of how to conserve what we have if we're allowing a number of people that come in that are unaware of what our culture is or has been? I'd be happy to sort of take a first stab at that one. Um, I think that the, the metric to watch and to look at is the percentage of foreign-born in the country at any given moment. Uh, and that percentage is reaching, uh, I think it's probably exceeded now, 14%. Um, the last time it hit 14% in our nation, uh, there was a very significant backlash in the 1920s. Um, as a result of the immigration, large waves of immigration, mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe, uh, from about 1890 forward. Um, and what strikes me about the open border people uh, and the people who don't care about this and don't see it as anything other than uh, healthy development in American history is that you can't get them to tell you what they think that number should be or any number that reflects the level of immigration, because it's not just a question of bringing people in, it's a question of assimilation. And 14%, in my view, I think, and I think the American people sense this collectively, and they sensed it the last time, um, were, that that constitutes a, uh, a challenge of assimilation uh, that they think could be very deleterious to the nation at large, uh, especially if it continues. Is it, should, be, should it be 18%? Is it heading to 18%? Is it going to be 27%? Um, at that point, your question becomes very, very absurd. Uh, so that's, uh, I, I, th I think that we've reached that point where uh, assimilation and 
um, 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 closing off the influx to the extent that assimilation can happen much more normally and naturally uh, is in order. I'll jump in if you don't mind, Bob. This is, uh, is it Avi? You said, yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating to me, and I, I think I'm probably contrary to a lot of modern conservatives in uh, all of my own views, but historically, to look at just how peoples have moved. We know that peoples move almost any time they can when they don't have security. That, that is just a constant in world history. And the only time they stop is when they don't have the technology. So, for example, getting stuck at the Atlantic until they can cross the Atlantic or in the Pacific and vice versa. Uh, we see that constantly. And in the American tradition, we had a very, very long period, almost 100 years, between about, well, when John Quincy Adams was Secretary of, of the state uh, all the way up until 1921, with the exception of the Chinese and then a gentleman's agreement with the Japanese, we had almost completely free borders. Uh, we had free movement of people. People were labor. Uh, we had free movement of capital. We had this incredible, just, um, just motion mm. everywhere in the United States. And now, of course, these problems that Bob is bringing up, these are serious issues, but our tradition has always been one of allowing peoples to move pretty freely. We don't, we don't see any major restrictions until 1921, and again, then again in 1924, and then we have to wait again until 1964 and 65 to see really major restrictions on immigration. So our tradition has been one thing, obviously, where we're at in modern America, that's something else. But I, I for me, I'm speaking very personally here, I missed when suddenly the Republicans became the party of closed borders. That happened during my lifetime, but I don't remember a moment where it suddenly transitioned. I remember talking to people in California who were very upset about immigration from Latin America and Texans who were very happy about it, and then suddenly it became something different, I think, among most conservatives who became very restrictive. I think this, we must talk about it, and I don't see this kind of conversation that we're having right here and now uh, being conducted at a national level. I don't see members of Congress doing it. I don't see members of the Senate doing it. And frankly, I don't see conservatives doing it. Uh, and we need to get at this and, and talk about it. I mean, this. Uh, I think that uh, what Brad is saying about all of a sudden you're saying, oh, that's, that's interesting. What does that mean? Do we just ignore those 100 years? Or do we say that we're in a different period, or do we draw upon that? I don't know what the answer is, but I think we need more talk, more discussion, more debate on there's no more vital issue, it seems to me, than, than, than immigration. Well, one point I think I would make is that um, whatever those policies were during those 100 years, um, they did not manifest themselves in terms of a uh, foreign-born percentage anything approaching 14%, right. Brad. Okay. So that was because of the That's technology important. factors you're talking about. The, 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 yeah. the massive influx was not possible. Uh, so it didn't create that question or that problem or that challenge uh, that, that, I'm, that I'm referring to. But let's point this out. Um, in the first debate, in the first Republican debate, 2016, actually it was in 2015, um, immigration came up. And Donald Trump, the, the crude strum that he is, said, you wouldn't even be talking about this if it weren't for me. And that's absolutely true. Um, because all the uh, um, establishment politicians wanted to finesse that issue throughout 2016. Why? Because they can't control it. 
in the middle of a campaign. They can control it more in the legislative session, in the legislative setting, and that's what they wanted to do. So let's not talk about it. And then Trump comes down the escalator, and in his crude, very you know, awful manner, um, uh, says what he says about Mexican immigration, and and it couldn't be ignored anymore. And my own view is that that because. I mean, the establishment parties ceded the issue to this crude guy uh, because they were trying to finesse it. And my view is they ought not to have been trying to finesse it. They should have been addressing it in a responsible mm -hmm. manner. Right. I used to be on the editorial board at the Dallas Morning News in the last decade. And of course, in the 2000s, uh, immigration to Texas was an enormous issue. It was the issue. And our, our board took a really aggressive stand for immigration reform at the national and at the state level. And I, I, I don't have a particular passion about immigration one way or the other, but I, I noticed after a while that everybody on our board, whether they were Republican or, or, or Democrat, and we had a good mix, we also had white, black, Hispanic, uh, everybody thought immigration was a good idea. And we didn't see the people in our own city who suffered from immigration. I actually went out to some of these neighborhoods that were really suffering uh, from uh, having to say, uh, they were overwhelmed by the, the tide of immigration, illegal immigration from Mexico. And uh, it was striking. And it made me, going out and actually seeing these neighborhoods and talking to people, made me realize that all of us on the editorial board, we were all middle class people. You know, we, our, our impact or, or our, our meeting immigration was in the restaurants where you got great ethnic food. It was in getting good gardeners. It was being able to get good people to, you know, to, to work for us. But we didn't have to send our kids to the schools that were suddenly overwhelmed by kids who didn't speak any English. And the schools had to deal with them. We didn't have to use the public hospital, Parkland Hospital, like poor white and black people and Latino people who were citizens did. These were these were invisible to us, and so therefore the immigration issue I came to feel was in many ways an, a, a chance for us to virtue signal. You know, we're not like those redneck bubbas out there who can't stand Mexicans or whatever. And uh, I thought about that a lot when Trump, when, when Trump came out and, and was so successful with that. I don't agree with the way Trump talks about immigrants. I think it's ugly in many ways, but at least he was talking about it. And he was not ignoring it and ignoring the concerns of the people that, that uh, we middle class people in the media in, in Dallas just did not see. Or if we saw them, it was only to, uh, to put them down for being, being bigots. And uh, secondly, I want to say real quick, if you haven't read this new book by the Yale uh, law professor Amy Chua called Political Tribes, I recommend it. One of the things she says is that history shows us that in, 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 in polities where there, uh, there's no one dominant minority, things become really unstable and can turn into violence. She doesn't say this will happen to us, but she says we have to, we have to be careful about it as America transitions from being a majority white nation to being one in which no particular minority dominates. Uh, this history shows us, and looking around the world, it shows us that this could go really bad for us if we're not careful with how we manage it. And that, I think, is probably the best reason to put a cap on immigration right now until we can, we can stabilize things. Well, I think we can see from this just how this issue just generates some real strong 
opinions. And I just want to throw in myself one thing. And that was a, an idea of, in a book, I think, The Americanization of Emily. I'm trying to think where that was, Bob. A novel. A uh, novel. Mm -hmm. And to me, that, that is a major issue when we start talking about immigration, is assimilation, but education and the Americanization of people are coming here, whether they're particularly, of course, if they're, if they're legal, they should be willing to accept our culture, our language, our ideas, and so forth, and our ideals. And that is also a part of this greater uh, debate which we need to conduct on immigration. We'll keep on, keep on going, but I want to do it all on that. Yes, uh, please. Gentleman in the front row here. Okay. Uh, I, I'd, I'd like you to, to evaluate the uh, heritage of Richard Dixon. I will start by giving my, my own opinion. He was not really a conservative, but, but in, in many ways he, he was kind of a much more intelligent and much more moral character version of Donald Trump and that he was able to appeal to the, the, the same sorts of people. And I've given my opinion, but I'll, but I'll leave it with you. I'm sorry, I didn't hear who, who we talked Richard about? Nixon. Nixon. What did you think of him as a character, especially versus Trump? Um, and, you know, no, because he was considered the well, uh, no, he, he was not, uh, and I think that in many ways he was a brilliant politician. He was also a tragic figure, his own worst enemy. Um, I, there's been a lot written about him, but I think the most recent book um, by, um, um, oh, heck, um, Jack, uh, I'm drawing a blank here, um, but uh, a wonderful, wonderful book that sort of, um, looking at him from the left, but... Um, attempts to understand what was driving this guy and ultimately the pressures of the presidency drove him to his uh, sort of tragic political uh, end. Um, in political terms, uh, he was uh, something of a phony, really. He didn't believe in anything. Uh, and he certainly was no conservative. He didn't govern as a conservative, but he managed to get conservatives behind him. Uh, and that was a, a rather interesting trick. Yeah. Isn't that what Trump has done? Uh, to a very large extent, Trump is the, Trump has some conservative instincts, uh, but he's not a conservative by any stretch. Just to, from a conservative point of view, uh, Richard Nixon was remembered by many conservatives as the man who got Alger Hiss. And because of that, conservatives forgave Richard Nixon again and again and again. <clears throat> and <clears throat> being able to do that of getting Alger Hiss, which was such a key issue, 48, 49, and 50. Uh, because if Alger Hiss had, <clears throat> had survived, that would have done a, a, a really a mortal blow to the cause of anti-communism. And with his uh, conviction, with his going to jail, uh, it showed that it was possible to be an anti-communist and to be part of that coalition, which ultimately became the fusionist uh, conservatism. Yes, I agree. I just want to say uh, the author was uh, John A. Farrell, Jack Farrell, oh, that I was sure. trying to think of. A wonderful, wonderful mm -hmm. book. 
Howard, thanks for the question. I don't have a great opinion on Nixon one way or the other, but I did when I was working on Russell Kirk. And you may have seen this as well, Lee. I found this great letter about 1962 from uh, a guy from General Motors who was raising money for Goldwater. And he said the problem, this was Jay Hall, he said the problem with raising money for Goldwater is when he would take Goldwater and Nixon around to various groups to get money from them. Nixon would always say yes, 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 whatever it was that the group wanted. And Goldwater would lecture them on why they were wrong. (laughs) and they could never raise money for Goldwater. Uh, And I I always thought that was a great story to compare those two. You know, uh, (laughs) yes, please, uh, in the back. Oh, here? Sorry, and then we'll get here. I just wanted to say, uh, uh, when Reagan ran for president, he did not have much conservative infrastructure. There was no Washington Times, no talk radio, no Internet. Um, no leadership institute, and uh, so now I'm I'm rather hopeful that there is a huge conservative conservative infrastructure in place in the country, uh, with lots of information. You can now research uh, Milton Friedman and see videos on YouTube. And so, with that in mind, do you have uh, a little greater hope that conservatives can do better? I'll- Unless you guys wanted, I, I loved earlier when Rod was saying, we've got to think about all this decentralization. Everything's decentralized now. And of course, part of Bob saying that, well, we've got this kind of populism. I guess I would use the term probably charisma for Reagan more than populist, but I understand very much what you're saying and the good versus the bad. I think that makes a lot of sense. But I do see, I mean, personally, and I, I've not had the experience that Rod had at this Christian school, um, certainly where I see my students at Hillsdale, I mean, they're I won't say they'll come in fully formed because they're 18, but they're pretty amazing. <laughs> and they dazzle me every year, and I'm humbled by them every year, and I find them impressive. And now, granted, I'm in a place that probably is a little bit weird and a little bit unusual in the best sense. Uh, Dr. Arn, if you're listening, this is all good. Um, but I, I, I do think that, uh, I think there is a hunger. I've seen a lot of great scholars, young scholars, <laughs> incredible scholars, Lauren Hall, uh, Abby Hall. Uh, Alex Salter. I, mean, I can think of a number of people in their late 20s, early 30s right now who are doing fantastic things in political science and economics and so forth. Uh, I think about someone on Fox News like Kat Temp, who I think is doing some very interesting things. So I think there's a lot of possibilities, and I think this decentralization, while it's always a problem, also has so many opportunities, and there are so many things that as long as we can find someone to find a voice, to give us a voice like Reagan did, or Kirk in a more intellectual way 30 years before, Goldwater in between, I think that there is always the possibility of someone coming forth and being able to to grab the imagination of a generation. And at least, I don't want to pontificate about this too much, but my own experience has been students, contrary to being immoral or being lost, they want stories of truth. They want stories of heroism. They want exemplars. They want to hear about those things because I think they're looking for those answers and they're not as subjective as we often think they are when we look at them from age 50 or whatever we are. Yeah. No, I, I'll say very briefly that I have a, I have a love-hate relationship with the, with the conservative industrial complex <laughs> On the one hand, I absolutely know that, that institutions are critical for the formation of the next generation. And uh, that's one of the reasons I believe so strongly that the Republicans have got to fight for religious liberty, because we have got to protect the ability of our institutions uh, to, 
to educate and form the next generation. Uh, and that is what is under, under threat right now. Um, at the same time, though, I wonder that, uh, having lived in Washington and enjoyed working in Washington, but also having seen how some people come, young people come to Washington very idealistic uh, about conservatism, you know, they become part of the Borg. They become, they, they, they lose the, the, the idealism that originally brought them here, and they come to, uh, to be enamored of just holding on to power. You know, and I think this is one of the reasons the Republican Party has lost its way. I think that a renewal, a genuine renewal intellectually and morally of conservatism will need to have this infrastructure in place you're talking about, and I'm glad we have it, but it will also need to nurture these ideas outside the imperial city so uh, that uh, to, to bring the renewal in from the outside, from outside the, 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 the system. Did you say Borg from Star Trek? I, yes. I did. Right. I didn't say that. That's great. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Yes. Here, here please. Thank you. Bertrand Wilson, I'm an economist. I wonder where you see the challenges for conservatism from uh, rising nationalism. I think it's a huge problem and a huge danger. I don't think nationalism is outside of maybe Poland and Ireland. I don't know of any really good examples where nationalism can be healthy. Uh, I, I find it very problematic. It's tribal. Uh, it's dangerous. It's exclusive. And I think it's very anti-liberal in the old sense of liberal education. I think it's very anti-Western traditionally, certainly against the Socratic tradition in almost every way. On the other hand, what, what do nations like Poland and Hungary, Czech Republic have to defend themselves against the EU and, and globalism, if not nationalism? I don't like nationalism either, but it's all they have at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> it seems to me that uh, the nation state has been written off and saying it's in its last throes, and yet it keeps coming back, keeps coming back. So as long as that nationalism is balanced, I think there is a place for it. After all, we are an exceptional nation. Uh, I believe that myself. <clears throat> it seems to me that that is something that ought to be honored. But every nation thinks they're an exceptional nation. <laughs> and every nation is right about that. I mean, I don't, I, when I go to France, I love France. I want France to be France. <clears throat> I don't want it to be absorbed into this sort of oh, yeah. generic Indeed. shopping mall uh, federation, you know? Well, that goes right back to my point that the nation state is important, whether it's France or whether it's America. Want to do one last one? One last question. Thanks. George Beebe. I'm with the Center for the National Interest. Um, I've spent my career um, studying the Soviet Union and, and then Russia. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the relationship between uh, liberty and virtue, something that you had brought up in the discussion. Uh, because that's been a very prominent question for me looking at that part of the world. Uh, the Soviet Union was a good example of a country that had neither liberty nor virtue, which made it very easy for conservatives to unite around anti-Sovietism. <coughs> Russia, uh, a country in the 1990s that had liberty but no virtue. That didn't work out very well. Um, today, I think in the United States, we've got another very specific case of an area where there's a lot of liberty and not very much virtue, and that's Silicon Valley, um, a, a part of our country that seems to believe very much in liberty but is pairing it with what you might call libertinism. Um, and this doesn't seem to be working out very well either in a lot of ways. 
And I'm wondering if you could comment about how conservatives can approach that very specific topic of social media, internet freedom, large, uh, almost monopoly uh, business practices, and, and virtue. Um, how, how do we approach that uh, vexing problem? <clears throat> uh, I, I'm not sure there's a solution to it. Um, I, I think that uh, <laughs> um, if you look at the trajectory of the West, um, you have to conclude that the West is in decline, uh, and it's in decline in a host of ways. Uh, and uh, one of those ways has to do with um, the the disciplines of life, uh, the 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 pursuit of virtue that was uh, part and parcel of our civilization in an earlier time and now isn't. Uh, and we can watch how that sort of got infected through the um, um, sort of the elite, uh, intellectual elites uh, in, the, in the 19th century in Europe, for example. And, and, uh, and what's interesting about that is that those people look down on ordinary people, on the middle classes, uh, burgeoning, emerging middle classes. Uh, without any conception that someday those middle classes were going to absorb all that and it was going to become part of their popular culture. Um, and it's uh, sort of a progressive degradation, it seems to me. So Silicon Valley, yeah, I agree, but it just seems to be uh, part of an ongoing uh, um, ongoing uh, a trend uh, that uh, Rod has been grappling with uh, so brilliantly and I think so... Um, um, uh, helplessly for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. And that's why I, I. It's really hard to know, Bob, where where we stand, where to stand, because the 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 effect of this technology on everything, uh, on the way we live, on every single thing about us, is immense, and it's going to get even more immense. There was a a, a guy I follow on on uh, Twitter. He used to work for Facebook. He's do doing a piece for Wired Magazine on virtual reality pornography. And he said that he went and had to look at some of it for the story he's doing, and he said, it's over. Something to that effect. And meaning that how do we, how in the world does, a, does a, the people, once they've, they've given themselves over to this sort of technology, how do they find the, the strength within to do anything? And I think it's not really a joke. I mean, he was being somewhat snarky about it, but it's not really a joke. And I, I, I don't know how we deal with it. I don't believe Silicon Valley is in favor of liberty as much as libertinism. I mean, look at what James Damore is going through if you want to, if you want to know Silicon Valley's dedication to liberty. There's a really interesting book by a historian, uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, called Homo Deus. It came out last year. And he talks um, with great excitement about what technology in Silicon Valley, which is the, the promised land of the, of the uh, techno-utopians, about the kind of power it's going to give us to even re-engineer what it means to be a human being. Um, I don't know if there's any way politics can can stop this at all. I, uh, but I think that individually, we don't have to surrender to it. This is why I, I, whenever I go give talks about my book, The Benedict Option, people say, well, what's the first thing we can do as a family? Say, take the smartphones away from your kids. Don't give it to them. Don't get caught yourself, don't get yourself caught up in that either, because 
Uh, once you go down that road, it's very hard to get out of it, and you will lose any sense of virtue. You'll become so dis, um, disassociated or disconnected from the real world that um, you know there may be no coming back. And I'm speaking very direly about it because I talk to people on college campuses and elsewhere who are seeing what this is doing to young people and their inability to focus or inability to know of anything beyond their immediate desires. I say this as someone who makes his living off the Internet and who, who really loves the good things that technology has brought us. But um, I believe that we have to work very hard to be the master of it, not let it become our masters. I don't know that this, is, this thought even occurs to most people, though. It seems to me that uh, we don't have to talk from our, our own experience and I've been fortunate enough to be a, have been a, an adjunct professor at Catholic University for 31 years, uh, part uh, because uh, Klaus Wren did not lower the standards but maybe work my fanny off to get my degree. So I'm very grateful to you, <laughs> Klaus, for doing that. And I say to my students, the first thing is put away the iPhones. Put them away. Put away the pads and all the other things. And we're just going to have a discussion and a lecture here for an hour and a half, and uh, and that's the way it is. And every now and then I'll look down and I'll see somebody has got his head, you know, sort of lowered and he's doing this. I know he's cheating a little bit. But there are so many wonderful young people. Maybe it's because I work here at the Heritage Foundation and I see the interns, 250 of them will come through every single year. Because, because I know of the work of ISI, Interstudies Studies Institute, and uh, the Fund for American Studies, and Young Americans for Freedom, and Students for Liberty, too, not just uh, only conservative organizations, also the Leadership Institute. Hundreds, maybe thousands of young people are being educated that way or being influenced that way uh, with, with the good and the true. So I'm an optimist, uh, and I always have been, and I will be, and I think... Uh, Maybe if you can capture a little bit of that here this evening, along with, I think, some very good, solid, and even brilliant uh, analysis by our three panelists. So please join me in thank you. Thank you. How do you feel about crawfish and beer? Let's, <laughs> Let's get some right now. Serious <laughs> questions. Brad? Bob, it's always good seeing you. Pleasure. Always. Uh, okay. I'm going to also... I'm going to be on the phone tomorrow, so I will be at the meeting, but but on the okay. phone. Will okay. you be there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get it.